Psalm 51, this is a new, new American Standard Version. <clears throat> Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in your innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with kisser, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Song of Encouragement after the lesson will be number 345. Please turn in your hymn books to that and have it ready for the appropriate time. Our lesson today is uh, the beginning of a series of lessons, uh, three parts actually, so we'll hopefully finish this lesson by the end of the month, this month of February. I want to read a portion of scripture as we introduce and begin our thoughts from Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we'll begin reading with verse 11 and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently upon us? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in, in, in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in, all your, in, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter gives this very fiery and eloquent sermon immediately after they, he and John healed the lame man at the gate beautiful. If you recall the story, they were shortly after that healing called in to give an account before the Supreme Court, if you will, of the land of Israel at that time. Uh, the leaders, the religious leaders, the religious elite did not like the fact that they preached in Jesus' name. But they boldly and loudly sometimes apparently proclaimed Jesus' name and the gospel of salvation to all men every opportunity that they had. Our lesson this morning is a compilation of a series of lessons that I gave on the Christian Messenger. Uh, several months ago, the Christian Messenger is a YouTube channel. You can look it up. More recently, I've used these lessons in Zoom studies with brethren in uh, international works. It's my prayer that this stirs us up by way of remembrance. Most of the things that I say today will not be new, but they will be beneficial for us to remember and think on, causing us to think about what the Scripture teaches about certain elements of our faith that we sometimes are prone to overlook. I fear that in our rash rush to give expository sermons and studies to build our faith, we might forget the foundational, the first works, if you will, the foundational truths of the Word of God and the gospel plan of salvation that the Word of God teaches regarding conversion. Given this study this morning based on the very simple premise that is on the board now. God is impartial. We know that God is impartial and we're thankful for that. Because he is impartial, impartial, 
He expects the same thing for every human being on the face of the earth if that person is going to, pl to please him. This is true from the first century until now. From the time of the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost, even until now. We expect, and he expects, we understand that he expects the same requirements for us today as he did for them then. So we can turn back and study the account that we have of the first church in the book of Acts and see what they did to please him and know that if we do what they did, we too can please him. But in Acts chapter 10 verse 34, Peter supports this premise, teaches this premise by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is recorded for us. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Acts chapter 10 is the story of the conversion of Cornelius. The story of, if you'll pardon the idiom, uh, the Gentile Pentecost. In Romans chapter 2 verse 11, the Apostle Paul picks up on the theme and says there is no partiality with God. And again in Galatians chapter 2 verse 6, we read and we learn that God shows personal favoritism to no man. This is a theme that is found throughout the scripture. We focused at this point on what the New Testament teaches. A definition of some terms seems to be in order here. Asking the question, what is conversion? A very simple question and a very simple concept, but sometimes it seems we might forget or we might get convoluted and confused as to what conversion actually is. Why should one even be converted? Who is eligible for conversion? These are things that we're going to consider in this lesson. These answers are, the answers to these questions are very, very important, and they may surprise us as well as instruct us. So first of all, what is conversion? It's enlightening to learn from a careful study of the Word of God, especially in the King James and the New King James versions, uh, translations, um, that the word conversion, converted, converting, things like that, is actually used rather sparingly uh, just a few times. In Psalm chapter 51 and verse 3, which our brother read to us, he said, uh, David said, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the passage that we've chosen for our text this morning, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts chapter 15 and verse 3 so being sent on their way, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. This is Barnabas and Paul recounting the uh, exploits, if you will, the encouragement, encouraging report of their first missionary journey. In Psalm chapter 51 and verse 3, the common versions seem to be well divided uh, in their translation, the, the popular versions, I might say. They use either the word converted, return, 
or turned back. So when we look the word up in Psalm 51 and verse 3, we find that the Hebrew word there means to turn back, to cease, or to withdraw. We find similar words in the Greek in Matthew and as well as as well as in Acts, which means to turn back. But Acts 15 and verse 3 speaks more clearly and more definitely of a moral revolution, a drastic change in an individual's life. Let's put all this together and see how it works for us today. David proclaims confidence that if he teaches sinners about the Lord, they will turn back, turn back from their sin, turn back from the wickedness of their evil ways. Jesus and Peter, speaking to the Hebrews, or speaking to the Jews, instructs them to become like little children. Paul and Barnabas rejoiced, declaring that the Gentiles had experienced a moral revolution. What does this all mean? Is a moral revolution and becoming like little children the same thing? Yes. In a word, yes. Little children, contrary to Calvinistic tenets and philosophy, are pure. This is what the Word of God teaches. Little children do not know sin. Sinners are to turn back or to turn away from their sin. No doubt, we begin to pick up and to glean from this passage that repentance and conversion are closely related. This doesn't mean that we are to revert to childishness. We understand that. This does mean that we are to become pure. This has to do with our choices, our attitudes, our behavior. And these things are reflected in our action, meaning, quite frankly, there are some things a converted person simply does not do. In Luke chapter 1 Verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Think about it. I feel like my slide is off, but maybe not. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, Again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John 12, verse 35, Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. We choose the light. We choose the light. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, we find the message preached was to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God to Satan, that, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Romans chapter 2, verse 19. You are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring forth light, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. 
at least nine times in the New Testament. The Word of God makes contrast, direct and stark contrast to between darkness and light. Being converted is expressed perfectly in that. Turning out of darkness into light. Turning away from evil and immoral behavior and choosing the light. Choosing the light. Yes, I said choosing. The Word of God teaches us that no one is born a Christian. We all have sinned. Romans 6 verse 23. And fallen short of the glory of God. This means that while none of us were born in sin, we all have become guilty of sin. And we all need to be converted. So why? Why should we be converted? If we haven't been able to pick up from that now, we should understand that there must be a scriptural reason for conversion. A Bible reason, if you will, to go from darkness to light, to turn back from the wicked path of wickedness to, and rebellion to one of righteousness and submission to, unto salvation. In reality, we're only concerned with what does the Scripture say. Again, the passage our brother read to introduce our lesson this morning, Psalm 51, helps us out drastically in this place. Hide your face from my sins. In other words, don't look on my wrongdoing. Blot out my iniquities. David is asking for his sin to be removed. Verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cleanness and steadfastness are trademarks of the characters of the child of God. <clears throat> Verse 11, David requests to remain in God's presence. It has been said, and I believe it is accurately said, that when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were cast out of God's presence. If you'll recall the story of creation, they walked with God in the cool of the day, every day. They communed directly with Him in His presence. But sin made that impossible. And since then, God has been working to restore to man that relationship that man so desperately needs and wants, even if he or she doesn't understand that that's what they really need. Verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of salvation. There's no joy like that confidence of forgiven sins that's found in being converted or being saved. David, again, in verse 14, asks for deliverance from guilt. Deliver me, he says, from the guilt of bloodshed. In this paragraph, David depicts what conversion is, and in doing so, he describes why one should be converted. Why one should be con Conversion equals sin being removed. Equals being in the presence of God. Conversion equals joy and salvation. Conversion equals freedom from guilt. These are good reasons to be converted. The scripture teaches that there's even more. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, Assuredly I say unto you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus is speaking very plainly, as he often did. 
The disciples had just asked him who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' response was, you must be converted and become like little children. And then, and only then, will you be a part of the kingdom of heaven. His reply indicates that it is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven without conversion. Being converted or translated out of darkness into light is necessary to be added to God's kingdom. Now the question that may have piqued your interest at the beginning, who can be converted? Are you saying, preacher, that some people are not even eligible to be converted? Some people cannot be converted? That question may sound strange, but that's exactly what I'm trying to infer here. It does seem to imply that some cannot be converted. The scripture answer is very important and very relevant. I want to point out to you as we begin this, to answer this question that the word of God is completely silent about certain groups becoming converted. Completely silent. There's reasons for this. The silence of the scriptures are very important. I'll, by groups, I do not mean, I do not mean to infer or imply any ethnic or cultural group. None whatsoever. But I do mean those who are not capable of sin or those who are not capable of faith. And we do mean those who, though capable, say capable of faith, may be guilty of sin, but refuse to have faith. Very strong answer to the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination, which tells us that you're born or you're predetermined before birth to believe and to be converted or you're predetermined not to be. There are certain exclusive qualifications for conversion. And I believe that the first one is the need for conversion. Very simply put, one who has not sinned is not in need of conversion. This is actually a rather large group of people. Infants, small children especially, before they reach the age of accountability, fit into this group. The child who can distinguish right from wrong needs to be converted, but a child who cannot distinguish right from wrong does not. Remember, babies are not born sinners. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 tells us that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. There's no Bible doctrine that teaches that babies are born in sin. Doctrines that teach such, it's called original sin, teach a man-made doctrine that is contrary to the Word of God. Basically, a person who is not a sinner is not eligible for conversion. Again, let's refer to the passage in Psalm chapter 51. David says, sinners will be converted. Verse 13. In Luke chapter 53, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous. We can easily transpose that word righteous with innocent, but sinners to repentance. I want you to consider next, the next group who are not eligible for conversion. Those who do not believe. 
are not eligible for conversion. The great hall of fame of faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, that goes through that beautiful and eloquent list of heroes of faith teaches us many things about our faith. One of the things is, in verse 6, it is impossible to please him without faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we cannot be converted. Put it a different way. One cannot be a Christian atheist or Christian Muslim or Christian Buddhist or Hindu. Adding to that, we need to understand that the religion of Jesus Christ is exclusive. Consider one of the most well-known and most popular verses in all of the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This necessarily excludes those who do not believe in him. It is believing in him is a prerequisite to have an everlasting life. If I understand anything about English, about grammar, I understand this. Hold on to this idea. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. The next couple of verses, John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, shed a little bit more light on this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Did you catch what verse 18 said? Faith means one is not condemned. The absence of faith means condemnation. The lack of faith removes any hope of the possibility of salvation. One more verse as we consider this. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. A mathematical formula, if you will, in the word of God. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. I'm reading from the New King James Version in case you're wondering. Most people in most places of the world can do simple math. We do it almost without thinking. This simple of a math anyway. If you have one of something and you require another of the same thing, you have two. We understand that. It's very common and very easy to understand. Matthew chapter 16 verse 16 takes this great spiritual truth and applies it to conversion. Belief plus baptism equals salvation. Belief is what makes one eligible for salvation, in other words. Baptism is where salvation occurs. If either one are missing, you're not saved. There is no conversion. I want to move on from our text now for the next few minutes. In Acts chapter 2, we have a wonderful story of the creation of the church. The birthday of the church that Jesus built, you might say. There's miracles that took place there. 
There are some things that are strange and difficult to understand and others that we argue about with different faith groups in many cases. In Acts chapter 2, we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, and men who had not studied foreign languages suddenly being, being able in some fashion to be able to speak in other languages. Understand there were at least, if the record is, if my count is accurate, there were at least a dozen language groups represented in the temple on the day of Pentecost that day. The crowd, because of the phenomena that was going on, that had occurred, was drawn to the disciples, and the disciples began to preach the gospel to them. We learn from prophecy that this event was foretold. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 tells us many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, a reference to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, a reference to Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Our purpose today is not to teach prophecy and its fulfillment, but to study the grand conversion event in Acts chapter 2. Want to know who, when, and how these conversions occurred. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit baptized those 120 and empowered them to preach the gospel as they had never been empowered before. We're sure that there were at least 3,000 people who heard the gospel that day. In Acts chapter 2 verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised up his voice and said to them, Men of, Ju of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. He begins to defend the brethren by preaching the good news of Jesus to the crowd that was assembled on Solomon's portico. He invites them, heed my words or pay attention to what I'm about to say. In verse 41, we learn the number of those who heard Peter's sermon. Those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day were about 3,000 souls were added to them. These 3,000 people were people who had been sinners. They were sinners. Peter, in his sermon on that day, in Acts 2, verse 23, correctly accuses them as being guilty of murder. He says, Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. He was bold and clear in his sermon. He left no room for doubt of the crimes that these people had committed. He showed from Old Testament scripture that Jesus was the long-expected and oft-prophesied Messiah. His sermon was powerful enough to convict these people of their wrong. So that in verse 37, not knowing the Western style of order that we have today, these people interrupted Peter as he was speaking and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were clearly convinced of their wrongdoing. They openly confessed their sin, their crime, their sin against God and against humanity, and they wanted to know what they needed to do. Again, the first point of conversion is that one must be a sinner. They must recognize the fact of their sin. It probably seems like an insignificant point. 
but it's one that Jesus taught and it's one that is clearly made in this passage. There's no reason to try to convert a child who is incapable of understanding right from wrong. Being assured that the Calvinistic doctrine of original sin is false, we're assured that little children are safe because of their innocence. Adults, young or old, are not safe. We are not innocent. Again, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 comes into play. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Once we're convicted of our sin, as those 3,000 were on the day of Pentecost, we begin to realize there's something that we must do. We must find out what we need to do. This brings us to our second point, one that is unusual to hear in religious circles today. Maybe even unusual to hear among us. There must be a preacher. I don't mean a person who is paid a salary and sits in an office or presides over a congregation in the denominational thought or mindset. Nor do I refer necessarily to one who travels about and holds gospel meetings and goes to foreign lands and preaches the gospel is supported for that occupation. I do mean someone to point the way. I believe it's time for the world to lose the denominational mindset or concept of a preacher anyway. Let's return back to what the scripture teaches. The pattern for Bible personal evangelism is what I'm talking about here. Jesus commissioned the disciples and he commissioned us, every one of us, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said, go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The apostle Paul caught the drift and said of this commission and said in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Very simply put, someone must go and tell. That someone is you. That someone is me. We must go and tell across the country, around the world, next door, to our own household. We're responsible for souls who are being lost if we don't tell. We see in Acts that a preacher of some sort is always involved in spreading the good news. No one today can learn of Christ by a miracle or a vision. This is a recurrent theme in the book of Acts. There's the story of a husband and wife. We'll, we'll study about that later. Who preached the gospel. There's the story of a jailer who preached the gospel. There's the story of a businesswoman who preached the gospel to her household. There's a story coming in our study of a man who had a vision of an angel. But the angel didn't preach the gospel. The angel instructed the man to send for another man who could come and tell him words whereby he might be saved. Acts chapter 10, verse 6. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. The gospel is to be preached by men to men, so that men can obey the man. 
Peter preached. He preached Jesus. He preached sin, judgment, baptism, and grace. This is all involved in faithful gospel preaching today. Notice again the crowd's query. Men and brethren, what shall we do? This was a sincere question for that 3,000 and in the tabernacle, in the temple that day on Pentecost. They needed, they needed, they knew they needed to do something about their sin. Let's do away with this notion of a free salvation. Meaning that there is nothing to do for salvation. These first converts in the church knew without argument. And they wanted to know what it was they had to do. Peter answers just as boldly and as clearly as his preaching was previously. Acts chapter 38, chapter 2, verse 38 through 40. Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. He exhorted them to salvation by beginning with the process of repentance. Repentance, repent, is often found in the Word of God connected with the idea of conversion. Friends, you cannot be saved and remain in sin. You cannot be a Christian and keep on in the life that you've been living. You must repent. You must repent. Let's conclude with the last few words of Acts chapter 2. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church. Daily those who were being saved. Now many people today claim and hold on to the idea that the church is not important. They say, the common slogan is, join the church of your choice. We don't have that authority today. In fact, by submitting to Jesus, by obeying His gospel, we no longer choose our loyalty. By choosing what organization we will belong to. The scripture teaches that there is only one divine institution. The church that Jesus built. For a converted man or woman to join an organization that is opposed in work and worship or faith to the church that Jesus died for is incongruent at the very least. We do not join a man-made institution when we are converted, when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are added to Jesus' church by Jesus himself. Speaking for me. Speaking for myself, I do not want to belong to any organization that Jesus did not build. I can trust neither its power nor its mission. There are several great records of conversions in the book of Acts. One more that I want to look at this morning very quickly in Acts chapter 8. These lessons come in Acts chapter 8 from the life and work of an evangelist by the name of Philip. Philip was part of a larger crowd of disciples, Christians, who went about preaching the word. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Preachers. These were common laymen, everyday people. These brethren were fleeing for their lives from a man that we'll discuss later. This man's name was Saul, although he's better known to us by his Greek name, Paul. Here in Acts chapter 8, when we meet Saul or Paul, this is the second time, he was the great enemy of the church, and he warred against the gospel. Verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It was very uncommon for the law in that day to throw women in prison. But Paul did. Such great was his hatred for the church that Jesus built. But let's look quickly at Philip's story. If you will recall from a bit ago that a necessary element of salvation or conversion is the preaching of the gospel. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And preached Christ to them. This is the second time in two verses that we read about people preaching Jesus in places other than Jerusalem. Philip was one of these people that preached Jesus. He went to the country of Samaria to preach the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we understand from history that the Samaritans were a people of mixed ancestry. They worshiped God in a different manner than the Jews. It seems that the gospel was gradually but carefully and certainly being given to the whole world. Acts chapter 8 verse 6 gives us an explanation of the miracles that is good for us to consider. But before we continue, we should touch on the idea of miracles. What exactly is a miracle? Most folks seem to think that a miracle is an action which God, is any action which God has involvement in. We've heard some proclaim a sunrise a miracle, the birth of a baby, or the beautiful blue sky, or finding that parking place that was just perfect, a miracle. These things are not miracles. Surely we might say that God is involved in these things. Certainly he is in the birth of a baby. Psalms 19 and verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The apostle Paul catches that idea and explains it, its glories as evidence of God's existence. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We certainly are in awe, and we certainly wonder at the handiwork of the divine. The glorious sunsets that we have in this part of the country is one of the reasons that I love this, this area. We insist by the word of God that God's involvement in nature is not miraculous. Praiseworthy? Certainly, but not miraculous. Evidentiary? Yes, but not miraculous. We learn most about miracles from Jesus' life and his works. He did many, many miracles. The very verbiage of much of the record seems to indicate that there was something special and extraordinary, supernatural, or other than natural. 
Often the things people call a miracle are just natural events governed by natural law that God has set forth. Birth, ocean currents, sunrises, starlit nights, they're all governed by nature. But by searching Jesus' life, we see many events that are supernatural. One such, the Apostle John records in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples attended the, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And they had run out of wine. This was an embarrassment to the bride and to the groom and to the governor of the feast. Jesus' mother comes to him and asks him to do something. So he asks for barrels of water to be brought to him. And he changes the water into wine. We don't know if he touched the water. We don't know if he spoke over the water. We don't know what happened. But after the guests had had drinks from this new wine, the governor of the feast praised the bride, or the groom rather, said every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. This change was not natural, but supernatural. Water doesn't change instantly and naturally into wine, but it's done so by a process. I've noted in other lessons and in other studies that even skeptics and atheists agree that a real miracle is not a natural event. Now, back to the story of Philip in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. The multitudes in Samaria heard and saw the miracles that Philip did. And we're somewhat at a disadvantage in understanding or knowing what they were. We don't know precisely the stories of what happened, not in great detail. Verse 7 tells us, Unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 6, if you'll recall, or if you have your Bibles open, and we'll back up just a verse, Tells us that the performance of miracles and preaching of the word were joint actions. This is very important. These people heard the word and had miracles performed on them or in front of their very eyes. And this created faith in their hearts. Because of that faith, they listened with great joy to the preaching of Philip. Chapter Verse 8 tells us there was great joy in the city. Previously, we've had an approximate number given for our learning in the conversion event in, on Pentecost. About 3,000 were added to the church. Here, we're only informed that multitudes heeded the things spoken by Philip. And we wonder, what exactly was it that Philip preached? If this was all the record that we had of Philip's work and of his preaching, we would do well to wonder. But Luke, the human author of Acts, launches into a side story of the conversions in Samaria. The Samaritan's faith was needed to hear and obey the gospel. Romans 10, verse 17, teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We see that faith is born by hearing the facts and judging the evidence of the risen Lord. 
Luke informs us here that a certain man named Simon, this Simon had previously practiced sorcery. He had earned himself a reputation by such a practice. He and many of the Samaritans believed what Philip taught concerning the Lord Jesus. This man was singled out of the story by being, as being baptized. Note with care, verse 11 and 12, the care, the care with which Luke informs us that Philip preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Luke says that men and women were baptized. He tells us then specifically that Simon was baptized. This action matches exactly the commands and the formula given in Acts 2, verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So we begin to see the pattern evolving, the pattern developing, that what God required in one place, he requires in another place. These people of Samaria who believed the good news of Jesus Christ had to be baptized in water just like the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost did. These people had to repent just like those did, give up their old lives, surrender themselves to Jesus' teaching. These who had been used to sorcery and trickery were amazed at the miracles that had been done. They expected some trickery, but there was no tricks. Gospel is not a trick. All was open above board. I think this describes one of the great characteristics of a miracle. A miracle always conform, confirms, always confirms the word of God. I don't under, misunderstand. God's word is true. God's word is valid, even without a miracle. A true miracle that is not a trick offers proof that the teaching of an individual is from God. This person is worthy to listen to. Philip was worth listening to. The Holy Spirit confirmed Philip's teaching with the miracles done through Philip. Because of the miracles, the Samaritans knew that God was behind the preaching of Philip. Notice quickly the next four verses. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Up to this point in Samaria, there was no Holy Spirit baptism. Many people today are deluded, deceived into thinking that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a command. Surely, if the Almighty God in heaven expected everyone to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, these people would have been. But we just read that the Holy Spirit had not been given. We just read that it was necessary for the apostles to come and lay hands on these people in Samaria after they were baptized in water for the remission of their sins so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. The things that are expected in one place of one group of people is always and without fail expected for every person 